0: Turn your Bibles there, or the pew Bibles in front of you, to Isaiah 40. It begins with, Comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord. It's the voice of John the Baptist, as you may know. And John was told to get out and get ready for the King, the Lord Jesus. In ancient days, whenever a king would come to town, um, it was like the president coming to town today. Potholes are filled in. Dirt is cleaned up. We don't want the president looking at this ugliness. So they cover it up. They put sod down or, or spray it green if there's no sod around. My daughter used to work for a famous and wealthy guy locally. Every Memorial Day, he would throw a race day parade at his mansion. There was a service road on his property, and he didn't want his distinguished guest looking upon that ugly, rocky service road. So just a couple of days before the race day party would be thrown, they'd bring in the dump trucks and the backhoe, and they'd pick all that rock up, and then they'd lay down sod on the entire course of the road. I figured out that it was probably at least $15,000 worth of sod, and it'd be down for three days, and then boom, they'd come tear it up and put the road back down. That's what the text says in verse three. They wanted to prepare the way for the Lord. And John Baptist was called to do that. Look in verse three. It says, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up and every mountain and hill made low. Why? Because here comes the King. Here comes the Lord of all glory. And so it is that whenever in our day, or really in any day, anyone who is to proclaim truths about Jesus and his coming, that person proclaiming that truth should attempt to pray, prepare the way for Christ to enter into the hearts of the hearers. The one proclaiming should make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God and how can we do that how can I do that this morning how can I make a highway to prepare your heart for God in Christ just to come into it well that's simple by proclaiming the truths of Isaiah 40 and towards that end look down to verses 9 through 11 do you know what an overture is Oftentimes a symphony will begin with an overture. An overture is a prelude, an introduction that picks up various of the musical themes and the mo- movements of the symphony that one is about to hear. That's an overture. In like manner, verses 9 through 11 present the overture of this Isaiah 40 uh, chapter. And so, verse 9. You who bring good tidings to Zion, that's another word for Jerusalem, it could just as easily be ZPC. You who bring good tidings to ZPC, get up on a high mountain, or in my case, get up behind the pulpit. I need to be up here because I'm so short, you wouldn't be able to see me if I was down there. But at any rate, get up behind the pulpit, get up on a high mountain, and lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Don't be afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, or say unto the people of ZPC, here is your God. Here is the call to all people, really, you and me this morning, let's take one more long, steady look at our God. Why? Because he's so awesome. And this passage will go on to say, look, there's nothing that we can put up against the incomparable nature of God. Nothing. So I ask, what is it in life that we are tempted to put up against the incomparable God? Is it our failures? Do we feel that our failures have been so great that they're greater than the great God? Is it our discouragements or difficult circumstances in our job, our marriage, cultural decline, economy, international tensions? What is it that we put up against God? Do we secretly think those are a match for him? Come on, Isaiah says, take one more long look at your God what are we going to liken God to? Well, theoretically, you say nothing, really. But in reality, the bad stuff in life I just mentioned. No, that's the point of Isaiah 40, to remind us who he is. And no one, nor anything, nor any trouble compares to him. And so the overture portion of this chapter continues in verse 10. Look at verse 10. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power. His arm rules for him. You ever see that picture on a baking soda box, that bicep in there, big thing? You put that baking soda in a cake and pow, it shall rise. That's the first theme here. God cannot be compared. Here is our mighty God, the slide says, who cannot be compared in his power. Isaiah goes on in verse 10 to say, see his reward is with him. His recompense accompanies him. What is the point here? As the personal and living God, he sees everything that goes on. There's not one thing that goes on in government, not one little thing in the small back room, not one deal in our home, Nothing that God does not see because he is person, he is real, and he is there. And he is uh, investigating. He is investigating life in order to bring reward and recompense, it says. His reward is with him. His recompense accompanies him. He's living person, and no one rewards and recompenses like the Lord. So God cannot be compared. Here is the living God who cannot be compared in his person to anyone or anything. And thirdly, in our overture, verse 11, he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers his lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those who have young. God picks up hurting people. He doesn't say, oh, I'm too busy and you're too nothing you're too insignificant. No, he, he says, I take regular people. I pick up little people, and I help them as well. So those are the three themes of the rest of our chapter. God who cannot be compared in his power, God who cannot be compared in his person, and God who cannot be compared in his pastoral care. Now, look down in verse 18 for a minute. It states the big idea of this chapter, the focal point, the driving point of this chapter. The reason it was written, really. It says, to whom then will you compare God? Or what image will you liken to him? We think, I don't know, there's an awful lot of troubles and biggies out there that compete with God's greatness. And the text says, wrong, wrong. Come back again and take one more long, steady look at the God that we've trusted. He's magnificent. Look down in verse 25. Same question is asked there. To whom will you compare me? Who is my equal, says the Holy One. You see that? God repeated the question. That means it's important. That tells me this is the focal point of this chapter. No one compares to God. All right, let's take a closer look at the three Themes that the overture brought to our attention. Verses 12 through 17 is the first theme, which is God cannot be compared in his power. Let's first compare him and his power to nature. Isaiah asked five questions in verse 12, comparing God to nature. Number one, who has measured the waters? Seven, the seven oceans, okay? They fit in the hollow of God's hand. Really? Three-fourths of the earth's surface, and it's just the hollow of, of God's hand? The oceans are great. You ever look at one? Yeah, they are. They're wonderful, but just the hollow of his hand. Well, if that boggles your mind, this next question will really space you out. With the breadth of his hand, he marked off the heavens. He's marked off the heavens? I should read with a question mark. What? The universe? It takes light years for light to go from one end of the universe to the other. Yeah, and God marks it off with the breath of his hand. I thought the universe was beyond imagining, beyond calculating the immensity of it. It's so gigantic. No, the Lord says, no, not really. (laughs) Universe. No big deal to him. Or What about still in verse 12? Who has held the dust of the earth? All the dust of the earth. I feel like there's a third of a bushel of dust in my house every week. But if you take all the dust and all the dirt of the earth, look at verse 12, it, it fits in a basket to God. About a third of a bushel. The whole earth. Or what about the mountains? And what about the hills? Verse 12 again. Who has weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Oh, Come on. God can put them on a scale. He can take Mount Everest almost six miles high of rock and dirt and ice and no big deal. Balanced out with the hills, mm-hmm. level. All right, all right. We, we understand God's power is declared over nature to be awesome. Well, what about smarts? What about wisdom, intelligence? Five more questions. Verse 13 to 14. Who has understood the mind of the Lord? you say, well, I had very good SAT scores and GREs. Yeah, but do you know the mind of the Lord? I doubt it. I doubt it. Take the test again. Who instructed him as a counselor? I've never had the Lord come to me at night and say, Jim, Jim, I've got a real toughie here. (laughs) Maybe you, but certainly never me. Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him, to teach him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge? He didn't go to any of our schools or universities. Who showed him the path of understanding? Well, I don't understand the details of what God is doing in my own life 90% of the time. I got the general idea, but I can't figure out why he's doing this or that. I certainly can't suggest a path of understanding to God. I got to tell you, when I used to try, he pretty much ignored me. Okay, what about the nations? You talk about power, the nations of the earth, they've got power. Verse 15, you talk about power, somebody pushes the wrong button, and the whole place is going to go sky high. All right, verse 15. Surely the nations are like a drop from the bucket. A drop from the bucket? Can I bring you a pre-recorded message of all the power of the USA and its military? You ready? Here it comes. Bink! That was it. That was it. That's everything. The extent of the power that the USA and its military has. You mean, really? Well, no, not in, not really, but in comparison. If we're talking about and thinking on the level of the high God who with his mighty power holds everything in this universe together with the command of his word, now that's power. Okay, we're impressed. I get it. He's pretty big. He's awesome, in fact. We decide to bring a gift or a sacrifice to this God. What is worthy to bring to him? Verse 16. Lebanon is not sufficient for its altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. You may not know, but Lebanon was a country that was famous for its mighty cedar trees, and also for its oxen. Let's modernize this. Let's take the redwood forest. Not really now, I know green theology. But let's say we cut down the redwood forest. Not really, just suppose. We cut down the redwood forest and we make a huge altar, 100 miles wide, 75 miles deep, and 25 miles high. Then we take all the longhorn steer in Texas and we throw it up there on top and then we light the whole thing. Now that's a sacrifice. You went know, to Texas? Puny, not sufficient, sort of twinky. But look, says, but look at that. It's sort of like a great big huge biblical Big Mac attack. Look at all those hamburgers up there burning. And the Lord says, "Oh, if you just came to know me, to know who I really am." And to know, I want to be on the side of ordinary men and women who are not so great in themselves, but who love and serve a great Lord. That's what he really wants, not the redwood forest longhorn steer sacrifice. He wants your heart. Well, let's look at Isaiah's second theme, verses 18 to 24. God, who cannot be compared in his person, verse 18. To whom will you liken God in his person? To what image will you liken him? Now he's going to talk about some of God's supposed competitors. As for an idol, the craftsman casts it. And we say, oh, skip this part. None of this. None of us are into this. None of us have a little statue out in the backyard, and we, we don't take out Cheerios. And so, here, Gotti Gotti, here, Gotti Gotti, here's Cheerios for you. Now we don't do that, but yet, idolatry is part and parcel of our life. Paul says in Colossians 3 5, avoid coveting things which is idolatry. I want to achieve this goal before I'm 40. I will become a millionaire before I'm 39. I want my kids. I want this house. I want that. I want, I want. Listen, any idea, any person, any goal, equal to or greater than God in one's life, name it Baal. It's a false god. It's an idol. That's why he's talking about idolatry here, even if we don't have statues out back. It's not a competitor to God. Verse 19, regarding your idol, have a goldsmith overlay it with gold. People wear chains, fancy themselves up. Put silver chains on it. You know, make what you're deluding yourself to be your God more valuable by dressing it up a little bit. You know, the fastest computer, the most expensive car, whatever. Dress it up so it's worthy of your, your time. And if you're poor... Select wood, verse 20, it says, select wood that will not rot. If you're going to have an idol, don't let it come down with termites. That would really bug you every time you went out to worship it, wouldn't it? And look for a skilled craftsman. See that, verse 20? Look for a skilled craftsman. Some people couldn't make a god if their life depended on it. So you want somebody skilled. And last phrase in verse 20. Set up your idol so that it will not topple. Nail that baby down. Use a 20-penny nail. What you need in deity is stability. So, look, God in the Bible is living person. 14 times in the Old Testament, the living God. 14 times in the New Testament, the living God. God is not the force. He's not an idea. He's not a doctrine. He's not a philosophy. He is a person, and he's alive. Look at verse 22, the living God sits above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. The people are like grasshoppers? Well, no, but in comparison to the living God. Yes, in comparison. Or verse 22, he stretches out the heavens like a canopy, spreads them out like a tent to live in. No idol can do this. No human can do this. No force can do this. No one compares to the living God. He's unique. His person is far above even the rulers of this world. No one compares to him. Verse 23, he brings princes to naught. He reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are the rulers planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither. We say, what happened to him? Khomeini, Gaddafi, Idi Amin, Mussolini, Hitler, Saddam Hussein. Blew them away these rulers that I mentioned and others were put there in their place by the permissive will of God. Yes, but he also removed them prematurely because of how they stewardshiped their position. You say, does God do that? Oh yeah, he runs the place. He doesn't sit on his rocking chair in heaven. He sits on his throne ruling. So we come to the third theme. Verses 25 to 31, not only is he incomparably great in his power, not only in his person, but thirdly, our God is incomparably great in his pastoral care, tends after his people, his sheep, pastoral care. Verse 25 again asks, to whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Lord? is it your personal habits that you place equal to your devotion to God your spouse international affairs god asks what's bugging you that you would think it is equal to me do you know me asked the lord don't you remember i told you to cast all your worries and cares on me verse 26 lift up your eyes and look to the heavens Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one. Some say, well, they're laws. Kepler, Galileo. No, 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 no. Those laws are only describing. It is God who brings out every star and every planet, day by day and night by night. I love this next phrase. He calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. If God cares for stars with pastoral concern, calling each of them by name, how much do you think he cares about people who are made in his image? But you say, oh, there's so many people, six billion people. Yeah, well, do you know how many stars there are in the universe? Trillions more. And yet, verse 26 says, Of those stars he calls them by name see that verse 26 he calls them each by name who do you name you only name that which you own you name your kids you can call the kids down the street something but it won't stick you name what is yours well God names what is his and he knows the stars by name so how come do I have to wear a a name tag I think sometimes Well, at least for God, he knows my name, and he knows yours, and he knows mine, if he knows the stars. And he does. Verse 26 again, because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of those stars is missing. What shepherd could take care of his flock so well as the living God looks in on each of our life? He calls the stars by name, brings them out one by one. He watches over you and over me just as well. And when you get a glimpse of what we're talking about here, of who he is and how much he loves you and cares, then let's look at verse 24. See if you've ever been guilty of this. Now, Jacob and Israel, by the way, those are the two divisions of Israel. So he's talking about the nation of Israel when he says this. Verse 27. <clears throat> Why do you say, O Jacob, And complain, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord. My rights are disregarded by my God. You have to whine that out. You can't say it the regular way. (laughs) Verse 28. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. And his understanding, no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary, increases the power of the weak, even youths grow tired and weary. When my daughter was three years old, my first daughter, she would run around the backyard after dinner with what seemed like boundless energy, gone and on and on and on. And all of a sudden, boom, she was done, lay right down there on the grass, go to sleep. You could pick her up, just like a sack of potatoes, throw her in the air. You're not supposed to, I know. But you could. She was out like a light bulb, out of gas. Verse 30. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men, by the way, that's the word for draftees, the called up ones. Even young men stumble and fall, but those who hope, now listen, that's a key word in this chapter. This word for hope is not where you cross your fingers and put it behind your back and go, hope, 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 hope. No, no, no. This is a word that means, uh, uh, it, it's an Old Testament word that means you put your solid confidence in something you know will come through, of men and women who put their solid trust In the living God and I'm telling you it says here in this text of we who hope put our solid confidence in the Lord Those who hope verse 31 in the Lord will renew their strength. They will take off and soar on wings like eagles They run and they don't get weary. They walk and they do not faint How can they do that? How can we do that? Because they trust a God who is wonderful and so I ask in conclusion to whom Or what are we going to liken our Lord? You might say, if you just knew my life right now, it's so miserable. No, we need to say he's the living God. With this reality of his living person, with his power, with his pastoral care for us, whom he loves, he can be trusted and loved. There's no one like him. He's bought us with his own blood. Stamped, your sins are paid in full. And then on top of that, he put all of Christ's merit on our bank account. I don't know what you're dealing with today in your life. I don't know how discouraged or encouraged you are, but get encouraged all over again because we serve a God who is incomparable. May God bless all of our hearts as we respond to this message. Let's pray. Lord, help us now to be doers. Help us see the relief and comfort of putting ourselves under your authority and direction. Thank you for who you are, for your greatness, your power, your character and your love for each soul in this room. Help any who do not know you personally or who once knew you, but have found that life has crowded you out. In fact, help us all to say, come into my life, Lord Jesus. Once again, ask him to direct our lives henceforth. Thank you for hearing our prayer and for this text, this great marvelous text. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a word, or two of instruction. We're going to uh, share in the communion service by intinction. There will be elders uh, at four stations in front of the sanctuary, and uh, they will have a cup, and they will have bread. As you desire, take the bread, dip it in the cup, and then immediately share in the bread, which is